Follow Julie. All right. So we are in the very last segment of our House of God series, and it's called the House of Protection. And it, um, our passage is pulled from Ephesians chapter 6, and it starts with the word, finally. And so I thought, you know, before we jump into the word finally, we probably ought to have a quick refresher. So with that... I need you all to like strap in and put your crash helmets on because I'm going to give you Ephesians in three minutes and 44 seconds. All right? So this is the book of Ephesians in a very abbreviated form so that we can get to that word finally and go, ah, finally. All right? So here we go. The book of Ephesians in three minutes and 44 seconds. So since we now know that we were chosen in Christ before the creation of the world, that we were dead but made alive and and seated with Christ, since we know that we have been saved by grace and not by works, since we know that we have been created to do good works, and that the Gentiles too are becoming a dwelling in which the Holy Spirit lives, Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, and that God has made the two groups one, creating one new body. And since through the church, the wisdom of God should be known and that in Christ and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And since it has been made known that the Lord loves us, and I pray that you may know the height, the depth, the width and breadth of that love, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Keep unity because there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. And by speaking truth in love, we will grow to a mature body built up in love. Don't live as the Gentiles who are separated from the life of God because of ignorance that comes from the hardening of their hearts. And as a result, they have lost sensitivity and are given over to sensuality and greed. Put off the old self and be made new in the attitude of your minds. Put on the new self. Put off falsehood. Speak truthfully to your neighbor because we are one body. In anger, don't sin. Don't steal anymore. Do something useful with your own hands so that you may have something to share. Don't speak unwholesome talk, but only what is helpful for the building up of the people. Get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, malice. Be kind, compassionate, and forgiving. Follow God's example. Walk in the way of love. Let there be no hint of sexual immorality, impurity, greed among you because these are improper. No obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking because these are out of place. Because no immoral, impure, greedy person, such people are idolaters, 
have any inheritance in God's kingdom of Christ. Once you were darkness, now you are light. Live as children of light. Live in goodness, righteousness, and truth. Find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Become a light. Wake up, sleeper. Arise, and Christ will shine on you. Be careful how you live. Be wise. Understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He who loves his wife loves himself. Children, obey your parents. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your masters as you would obey Christ. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. And finally, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of, of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith which with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whatever I speak, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I, might, I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. I feel like I'm missing part of this. Hmm. Oh, yes. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God and the fathers, uh, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. So that was Ephesians, the whole book. And so now we begin. So this, this particular section, Paul starts 
you know, finally be strong. And he introduces a metaphor, that of a, it's a military metaphor. He, he alludes to armor that a military person would wear. And by doing that, he invites us to think militarily, right? And the one thing about the military is that you have a number of single individuals that act as a united group with a united goal in mind. So we don't act as a solitary person. And so when Paul uses this metaphor, he invites us to think as a single organism, single group of people that are united with one common vision. And the idea of military brings into the idea of training, the idea of honing one's skills, whatever they may be, so that they can be put to service in concert with the, the, the unit that you're with to accomplish whatever task that you have. <clears throat> and so we are in a battle. There's no doubt about that. We are in a battle, and we don't act alone. We act together within the framework of that idea. And our battle is not against other people. It's not. Our battle, as Paul says, is against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's where we do our fighting. And so this whole idea of putting on the armor becomes important. And the pieces of the armor, you know, it's funny because uh, depending on how, uh, you know, what tradition you hail from, uh, some people, you know, they, they look at the armor as some kind of uh, talisman, like a lucky rabbit's foot, you know. You can, like, rub it and, and you get magical power from it, you know, like they, they put on the belt of truth and they kind of go through this exercise of praying through everything. And I suppose there's some... There's some helpfulness to that, to imagine, you know, donning all of these pieces. But I feel like Paul invites us to imagine it, but the idea of training through it is often missed. You know, it's like you think of, you know, people who are in the martial arts, whether it's karate or taekwondo or whatever it is that you guys do. Um, they have these different degrees of belts. And someone who has invested themselves and done the training to develop their skills and their flexibility and their reflexes. And as they progress, they get to wear a higher and higher order belt. And sometimes I feel like we miss this idea when we think about the armor of God. We think, oh yeah, I'm going to put on the belt of truth like I'm a black belt. But we take it so flippantly. We don't treat it with any sort of really honest uh, introspection about what does it mean to don the belt of truth? Is it some form of training that requires discipline? Does it require intentionality, focus? And this is where I want to start because I feel like the idea of truth, of siding with truth, of donning the belt of truth it's important. It's so important because it exposes us. Whenever you 
come into the light, you are exposed. And it's unnerving and it's terrifying because suddenly you feel naked and you feel vulnerable. And that's what light does. That's what the truth does is it undoes you. And that is important. But it's also an awesome thing because when you align yourself with truth, you are aligning yourself with one of the fundamental platforms that the universe operates on. Truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. So when we say, Lord, I want to walk in truth, we are volunteering ourselves to be exposed. Volunteering ourselves to have the Lord, you know, you know, I remember the day I, I invited the Lord into my world. I was angry, shaking my fist at heaven, not even sure that the Lord was real. I was just so bent. I was like, if you're real, go ahead. You've got the green light. You can do whatever the heck you want to get my attention. And it was, you know, within 24 hours, suddenly my eyes started seeing things. And my mind started, you know, recollecting things that I had said and done. And I was undone. I realized I am a grade A a hole. Pardon me. I had that, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I said that. I can't believe that I did that. And I started, you know, a list, just started compiling. And I felt like the Lord was putting on his surgeon's glove and saying, this is going to be painful, but it's going to be good. So gird your loins, because here we go. And uh, he had me go to work. I had all this stuff churning inside of me, and I did not even know it. And I don't know if you've had this experience where you're in some place, you're in a restaurant or something, and suddenly uh, a generator kicks off. And you were not aware of how much noise it was making until the noise is not there. You guys know what I'm talking about? If you can kind of feel that, you're like, the absence of the noise is noticeable because it's quiet. You're like, ah. And that's kind of how I felt when, you know, I was walking through this process of the Lord just doing the cleaning and letting his light shine in all these dark corners of my heart and my person. I started to realize, man, there's a lot of noise going on inside of me that was distracting me, that was constantly churning. And as soon as I started to pay attention to it, it was like, thunderous and he started to untie these knots and started to remove these distractions in my heart and my mind these things that were keeping me subdued and pulled down so the exposure of yourself to truth is important it's like Jesus when he talks about everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes to the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. 
I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And this process of coming to the light is so valuable. So if you haven't said that, you know, hey, Lord, I'm, I'm willing, sign me up for exposure, I invite you to do that because it's awesome. Terrifying, but awesome, right? And the interesting thing that it does, and you'll notice this in the writings, Paul, certainly, but in a lot of the writers through Christendom, like if you just trace it, there is this very real connection with being exposed and it generating humility in one's heart. It's like Paul says in Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So that process of exposure to the truth, it makes us very much aware of the, the reality that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags, that we fail and we miss the mark. And until we are aware of that, we're going to walk around being a grade A, you know, we're treating people like we just, you know, clueless. But the minute the Lord exposes us and begins to clean us, then we realize, I am undone. And it creates humility, which is so important because it levels the playing field. It, it removes that sense of, I don't know, entitlement, this sense of you know, righteous indignation because you recognize that, but for the grace of God, there go I. And it moves us into this idea of righteousness, this idea of this breastplate of righteousness. And when we think of the word of righteousness, we think of something along the lines of right living. Like, how do we live well? What does it mean to live well? And I feel like it needs to be informed by a few things. Firstly, I was dead. Robert Schmidt was dead, but I was made alive. The Lord reached in and he made me alive. Secondly, I was saved by his grace. There wasn't anything that I did. Absolutely nothing. He saved me. And three, that I was chosen in him before the creation of the world and that I was created to do good works. The truth exposes us and God's grace clothes us in his righteousness. And suddenly, I have peace in my heart because I, I'm honest, I'm in light, and I'm accepted, and I'm clothed, and there's peace. And now, like all of those noisemakers that were in my heart, they're not there. I have peace there. And when I run into people now, I can see that they don't have peace. And I'm like, oh, let me tell you about peace. 
I know where that peace can be found. And it moves us from a place of defense to offense. The idea, you know, Paul talks about having feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. You know, if somebody who's afraid of exposure, they're always on the defense. They're afraid that they're going to be found out. You're a fraud. You did this. You stink. You're a, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. We're always afraid of being exposed because we are bound by shame. We're bound by fear. We're afraid of being exiled, excommunicated, shunned. The Bible tells the story of Adam and Eve after they sinned. The first thing they did was hide from the Lord. And we still hide today. Every, every single one of us, in some degree, we hide because we're afraid to be exposed. But to align ourselves with the truth and say, Lord, sign me up. I know this is going to be painful, but I'm ready. You move into a place of strength. And it's awesome. And it moves us into a place of offense because we're known, especially in this idea of community. Like, if I do this as an individual with me and the Lord, it's great. But if I'm with people who know me and love me, that's freedom. Amazing freedom. So we move on from there. We go to a, a shield of faith. Now, I have been told um, that Paul had various options for what type of shield he could have used. And the word that he used for shield in this particular instance is one that was designed to be used in concert with other shields. So it created a solid defense when you were with other people. And so the idea of shield here elicits the idea of a group of people that are all standing together side by side, and they all have a shield that is working in concert with other shields. And the shield is useful for extinguishing the flaming arrows of the enemy. And you have to ask the question, what is the enemy, what's his target? Like right now I'm reading uh, The Hobbit with my son, and we're about to encounter smog, you know, the dragon who lives in the mountain. And smog has this one missing scale on his belly. You know, it's his only chink in his armor. So when we, were to, when we asked the, what is the great dragon? The prince of darkness who roams about looking to see who he may devour. What is, what is his, what is his, uh, what does he zero in on when he looks at us? He's going to take a shot at our dignity. He's going to take a shot at our beauty, our purpose. He's going to do everything in his power to eradicate the image of the Lord in us. And if we have not done the training to walk in his light, we leave ourselves open. We have not covered our weak spots, and he will find those. 
That's where he'll shoot you. And so that idea of walking into the light, especially as a community exercise, is so powerful because it creates a group of people who are not afraid of the light. And that's power. Next, we go to this helmet of salvation. And what is it that we know of our salvation? We have this passage in this book, Ephesians chapter 2, that says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even while we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The idea of the salvation that is presented here is that it has happened to us and it is a sure thing. The idea of Christ seated represents an act or a work that is accomplished. And so you hear theologians talk about the idea of the already but not yet. This is something that has already been done. We have yet to see its final unrolling. And that's what we live in. That's where the hope that we have, the hope of the gospel is that what it is that we believe is going to come to pass, that we, you know, in the, in the coming ages, he will show his incomparable riches of his grace. That's salvation. It's not something where, you know, you, you're hanging by some thread over a fire, you know, and if you do the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, you know, he's going to sever the cord and down you go. So when we think of that salvation, it brings peace. Solid peace. Then we move to the sword of the Spirit. And the sword of the Spirit is like, you know, it's the Word of God, right? And depending on how you were raised, there's a whole spectrum of uh, approaches to the sword of the Spirit. And some people, you know, within Christendom, they look at the Bible as a collection of writings from, you know, various authors. But, you know, is it inspired? Was it written by man? Mm. They're kind of ambivalent about that. They don't put any real stock in it. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have these people that treat the Bible like some spell book. You know, they open it up and they quote this verse and, and then they stamp that one in place by quoting another verse and, and they elicit the power of God. I'm going to shoot down the middle with this because I know it can, it can get a bit uh, awkward. I was raised in a, in a family where this was more of the, the world that I was in was over here. And I was like, sometimes I watched it and I was like, I don't know if the Lord operates like that. It just seems a bit, um, you know, to me it was a little uncomfortable. But the sword of the Spirit if I consider, well, what does the book tell us? Because I, 
this book, the Bible, it is the book on the planet that has shaped our world. If you think about how many people make allusions to it, they use principles that are drawn from the Judeo-Christian writings that then serve as a platform to then stand on. The book, and this is, you can hear people that are way smarter than I am talk about how prolific the impact of the Bible is. So, what does that Bible tell us? What does the sword of the Spirit tell us? Well, if we were to think about what does it mean to be human? Like you have human, noun, and you write your definition. What does the Bible tell us about being human? We were created by a loving creator. We chose our own way, and we still today suffer the cataclysmic fall in the brokenness of the world. Three, God did not leave us alone, but sent his son to die for us. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Four, you were built with inherent beauty and integrity and worth. No one can take that from you. And five, you have purpose. Your life means something. You were created to do good works, every single one of you. That's cool. And we have hope. The death of any one of our family members or ourselves, it's not the end of the story. We have hope. <clears throat> so the sword of the Spirit tells a powerful story in emancipating people. And I feel like what, this, the, what Satan does is he tries to take that definition of human and he will destroy it in any way possible. And if you take a look, you take that word human, you say, I'm going to drop this word into all these different worldview categories that are presented to us on the planet and see what does it mean to be human. And you will find that in no other place, in no other worldview, does the idea of being human shine so brightly as in the Christian worldview. It just doesn't. We have the most robust, beautiful, flourishing idea of what it means to be human on the planet. And it's found in the Word of God, the Sword of God. So when I think of the Sword of the Spirit being used, we have arrows in our quiver that we can use. You know, Satan, he might have his arrows that he can fire and they can find their spots and chinks in our armor, but we're also equipped. And when our arrows of the Lord find their mark, you can't, you can't unlodge those arrows. When you tell somebody that they were created by a loving creator and that they were made with dignity, inherent dignity and worth, you're not getting that arrow out. When you tell them that their lives mean something, that they have purpose, that they were created to do good works, 
That's not coming unstuck. When you tell them that they don't have to live in fear or shame of exposure, that there's hope, those are things that once lodged in their hearts will never ever be unlodged. The Lord will see to that. His word does not return void. And then Paul encourages us to pray all the time. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests, with all of this in mind. Be alert. Always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And I was struck with this question in my head today. Well, actually it was yesterday. The Lord's people. Praying for the Lord's people. You know, it's interesting. Jesus, when he was in a conversation with one of the teachers of the law... The teacher asked, who is my neighbor? Trying to uh, um, buy himself a little wiggle room because he had just answered that, you know, to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbors yourself is what you need to do to gain eternal life. And Jesus said, well done. So go and do that and you're great. He's like, yeah, but who's my neighbor? And Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he chose that parable because to the teacher of the law, the Samaritan was about as far from God's goodness and grace as one could get. He was an enemy. And in that same vein, I would like to ask, who do you guys think the Lord's people are? Who are the Lord's people? For myself, when I encounter people, I don't think it's happenstance that my world and their world bump together. I think that it's something that the Lord has orchestrated. And so when I run into people, it doesn't matter who they are, how they present themselves, what kind of mess they're in, I see them as someone who also has been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Maybe they don't know it yet, but that's how I treat them. And it makes a world of difference how I treat them. Because I'm like, oh, you're just like me. You don't have peace, but you know what? I didn't have peace. But you know what? You were created like I was created. And it levels the whole playing field. And I realize I'm no better than any of these guys. I can be as much of a stinker as anybody. So we have our arrows that the Lord has given us. And when we move together in concert as one body, as one new body that he has created, And we all move into the light and we operate into the light of the truth. And we line ourselves with truth. It creates this house of God. And we've talked about these attributes of this house. We talk about a house of thanksgiving. A house of living. Of reconciliation. Of wisdom. Of glory. Of unity. Of kindness and love of mutual submission, relationship, and a house of protection. 
When we live in this fashion, this creates the house of God. You know, when I was a kid, my grandfather, uh, he had Alzheimer's, and he had all but disappeared. He was still alive, but he was no longer there. And I remember one time we went to go visit him. He was in a care facility. And we went into his room, and he was in a wheelchair, and my mom was brushing his hair, and he was making all these weird, funny faces. I don't know, you know, when you don't get physical touch for a long time. Oftentimes I feel like it can be almost sensual overload, but he was making these faces. But he wasn't there. He was just, he was just sitting there. And my brother and Isaac and I were there. And my brother was standing in front of him when suddenly from somewhere way back in my grandfather's personality, there came a light into his eyes. And he locked onto my brother. And he said, Stand up. Be strong. And fight the good fight. And then he was gone. And so I would tell you all today to stand up. Be strong and fight the good fight. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Father, may we move into your truth, align ourselves with you, expose ourselves to you, so that you can make us into a people that are ready to do your work, equipped with the feet that are ready to share the gospel of peace. 